David's going to read our scripture reading tonight. Right on. This is Genesis uh, chapter 28, 1 through 22. So Isaac summoned Jacob, blessed him, and commanded him, Do not marry a Canaanite girl. Go at once to Pataram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father. Marry one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you so that you may become an assembly of peoples. May God give you and your offspring the blessing of Abraham so that you may possess the land where you live as a foreigner, the land God gave to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob to Padaram, to Laban's son of, son of Bethuel, the Armenian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Esau noticed that Isaac blessed Jacob and sent him to Padaram to get a wife. When he blessed him, Isaac commanded Jacob, Do not marry a Canaanite girl. And Jacob listened to his father and mother and went to Pedaram. Esau realized that his father, Isaac, disapproved of Canaanite women. So Esau went to Ishmael and married, in addition, to his other wives, Mahalath, daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son. She was the sister of Nebuiah. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He reached a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. He took one of the stones from the place, put it there at his head, and lay down in that place. And he dreamed. A stairway was set on the ground with its top reaching the sky, and God's angels were going up and down on it. The Lord was standing there beside him, saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your offspring the land on which you are lying. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. And you will spread out toward the west, the east, the north, and the south. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Look, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, What an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that was near his head and set it up as a marker. He poured oil on top of it and named the place Bethel, through previous, though previously the city was named Luz. Then Jacob made a vow. If God, will, if God will be with me and watch over me during this journey, I'm making. If he provides me with food to eat and clothes to wear, and if I return safely to my father's family, then the Lord will be my God. This stone that I have set up as a marker will be God's house, and I will give to you a tenth of all that you gave me. Like they are, they are in full revolt and may bust the door down any second, so I'm not, just be ready to run. Um, let's go uh, to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll look at uh, Genesis chapter 28. So again, Father, we, we come before you in prayer. Um, God, we thank you for this time of worship. We thank you for um, 
the ordinance of Lord, the Lord's Supper. Uh, we thank you for the fellowship and uh, the love and the friendship that we have in this place. Um, God, those are blessings um, that as, as many of us learned as we did our book study um, just a couple of months ago, those are blessings that we should not take for granted, that people all over the world, um, even now, um, live their daily lives in places where they do not know other believers, where they are isolated, where they are alone, um, where they do not have the encouragement, the friendship of brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for those um, relationships and those friendships, God, and, and um, ask that you would continue to use those things to bless us and make us more like your son. God, as we turn to your word, um, we ask that you would shine the light of the Holy Spirit on it. Um, God, that we would take from these passages what you would have us to take, that we would understand them rightly, and that, um, God, you would use these um, things um, to grow us and to um, chasten us and to make us more faithful. Um, Help us to be more like Jesus because of what we have read here. Um, We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, we uh, so we're going through this story um, of, of the life of Jacob, and we're we're calling the whole series "Wrestling with God," right? And we've talked about this idea of how um, we don't we know we don't know it yet because we haven't gotten to that part of the story. But eventually, Jacob is renamed, and he is renamed Israel, and Israel means one who wrestles with God, right? And so the, you could say, in a way, that not only is Jacob's whole story, and not only is the nation of Israel's whole story, and, and in a way, our whole story is a story of wrestling with. God. It is us coming to terms um, with the God who has saved us and and the God who calls us um, into his service. And so we see in this this story this time more of, of Jacob's wrestling. And it's and it's a beginning to a new kind of chapter in Jacob's life um, that we see. But but as we kind of step into that, a little bit of an intro, um, we, we kind of come off of, of last week's message. Um, and we remember how we talked about, man, this is just a family that has a lot of dysfunction in it. Like there's a lot of deception going on. They're not talking to each other. There's um, favoritism and there are all these difficult things going on. Well, there's one last deception um, as, as we leave that story and come into the next. And it's really the deception that has to do with why Jacob is leaving in the first place. We talked about it last week that Jacob um, is leaving his home and heading towards um, the, the region known as Haran because his brother has basically said, as soon as our father's dead, I'm going to kill you. Um, for what you've done. But apparently, as far as we can tell, Isaac doesn't know that. He hasn't heard about that fact that Esau is going to kill Jacob. But guess what? Apparently, because Rebecca likes to like listen in doorways or something like that, she's always just like sneaking around. She heard about it. She knows that Esau is, has said that he's going to kill Jacob. And therefore, she comes to her husband and, again, kind of puts this deception forward to get her son out of town. Because she probably knows that if she comes out and says it and says, Jacob's going to kill, I mean, Esau's going to kill Jacob, then that would cause even more problems and, and difficult things would happen. And so she kind of presents this new, story. And she basically says, hey, Isaac, I'm so upset about these wives that Esau has taken. He keeps on marrying these Canaanite girls, right? They're the girls, the local girls um, from around this region. Um, real quick, that's not because they're racist or something like that, right? It's not because they, they dislike the Canaanites for any sort of racial or ethnic reasons. The reason why they dislike the Canaanites is because the Canaanites have already been cursed, 
Okay, if you go back to the story of Noah's three sons, and Noah has this son named Ham, and he does something that's disrespectful um, to his father Noah, and Ham's descendants are are cursed um, because of that incident. One of Ham's descendants is Canaan, um, whom these people are named after. And so, basically, we already know that the Canaanites are a doomed people, right? And so there's this thing where why would would, would the, the family of God, the, the seed of this lineage of promise, why would we align ourselves to this group of people that God has already determined he's going to cut off, okay? And so that's the reason why they don't like the Canaanite um, girls. It's not just because, like, they're, you know... Trashy or something, right? Um, so, um, so he, that's, it, it's, it's, but the situation arises, right? Where he says, she says, man, I'm, I'm mad that my son keeps on marrying all these Canaanite ladies. Um, you know what, Isaac? We should find a better wife for our son, Jacob, from among my father's people. We should send him away so that he can go find a wife, right? Um, she doesn't mention the fact that Esau is going to kill him, but it's this last little deception. She's still manipulating things to make sure her favored son gets what he wants. And that brings us to the beginning of this story in chapter 28. So again, Isaac um, heads um, to Haran, right? Um, his father comes, and it says in verse 2, or, or the second half of verse 1 and 2, it says, You must not take a wife from among these Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brothers. Um, and then he says this, Isaac to Jacob, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave you, uh, God gave to Abraham. All right. And so now here's the deal. I'd like just to make, make a quick comment. I kind of painted Isaac pretty dark last week. Okay. Like at the end of last week's sermon, you were probably thinking, man, I didn't know Isaac was such a bad dude. Um, but apparently he's just kind of this jerky guy. I, I probably painted him with a harsh brush. Okay. Um, he's not a villain. Isaac isn't a villain, but you know what? He's not a hero either. He's just a guy. He's a husband, he's a father, he's a sinner, he makes mistakes, okay? And he has made mistakes in his family. Um, he's not somebody to be idolized, but he's also probably no different in many ways than most of us. And he loves his son, okay? Even though Esau is his favorite son, he loves Jacob too. And in this place, he blesses him. And he says, son, I still want what's best for you. I still want these good things for you. I want God's blessing upon you in your life. He doesn't look to him with resentment or anything where he's like, you tricked me. And so I don't want to talk to you anymore. He just turns to his son and he says, I, I pray that God blesses you in everything and that he gives you all the things that he has promised. Okay. And so um, he blesses him and he sends him away to Haran. Verse 10 marks a new beginning for Jacob. It's a starting over in a lot of ways for uh, Jacob. But it's a beginning that's intention, right? The, 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 the situation that he's in is very uh, much in upheaval. Jacob starts out on his own as a fugitive, you could say. Um, and I think it might be helpful for us to just pause for a second and think about the situation that Jacob found himself in. And think about maybe the way that he was, was thinking about the situation he found himself in. So Jacob, again, for all intents and purposes, is a fugitive. He is on the run 
for his life from his brother Esau. And even though he has a destination in sight, like there's a sense in which he doesn't exactly know where he's going. Like he's just leaving and getting out of town. Um, he has lied. He has betrayed. Um, he has done awful things to secure his future. And yet, what has it gotten him? Like he's, he's on the run by himself. He hasn't, um, achieved or secured those things, right? They seem more at jeopardy than, more in jeopardy than, than even probably before, um, he went through that whole th- thing where he deceived his father, right? He's leaving the land of promise. The, pr- the land that was promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, he's leaving it. Um, he's not taking control of it. He's walking away from it. The inheritance that he was promised, he's walking away from this place with nothing, right? He's leaving basically with the, a little bit of food and the clothes on his back. And so he's not taking control of his future. He's, in a sense, he's running away from it. And I have to believe that what, what Jake was going through Jacob's mind is he starts running. And he's just heading out into this, this barren kind of countryside, um, heading north towards modern-day Syria. He starts asking questions like, God, what is happening like what has what has happened? Have I have the decisions that I've made forfeited those promises? Right? Have I are all the things that I wanted are they slipping out of my hands because of what has transpired over the last few days? Um, as a result of my actions, granted, right? These are things that he did, um, but also they're the result of other people's actions, right? They were there was a violence committed against him. Okay, he didn't he didn't ask Esau to um, come after his life. And yet at the same times he had he had done things um, that in some ways elicited that. And so he's got to be wondering, man, has this all been for nothing? Like, have I have I lied to my dad and lost my brother and and dishonored my father to be a fugitive running for my life in the wilderness? Is this what all these things have gotten me? So again, pause and think about that situation for a second, because I think it's something that we can probably all relate to in some way or another. Feeling like a fugitive and an outcast because of things that we have done or things that have been done to us, I think is probably a pretty common experience. You start asking those questions, have I wrecked it? Am I too far gone? Is this all ruined? Have I thrown everything away by what I've done? I feel like I know for a fact that some of you have felt that way because I've talked to you about it before, right? Um, I've been, uh, many of you guys I've known for a decade or more, right? And I've been there at times in your life where you looked up and said, I don't know how I got here. Like, I don't know what happened. I don't, I was on this path and all of a sudden I'm over here and is it all over? Is, is, is it all gone? Have I, have I messed it all up? Verse 10, it says, Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep in that place. Okay, there's a weird repetition there of this word place that you might notice. Jacob's alone as he goes out, right? He's all by himself. He's heading towards Haran. And again, that's a regression, right? He's not coming to the promised land. He's walking away from the promised land. He's going back to the old country, right? 
Abraham was in Haran when God said, hey, you should go to the promised land because I'm going to give you this. Jacob's leaving the promised land and going back to the old country that is not promised to them, right? It seems like a regression um, in, in the context. Think about the story of Isaac. When Isaac needed a wife, he didn't go back to the, the old land. He didn't go back to Haran because his parents said, this is your home. This is the promised land. This is where you're supposed to be. We don't want you to leave here and by accident get stuck in that other place, right? That's not the case with Jacob. Jacob is leaving the promised land and going to a place that is not his, all right? So there is this, you can feel the tension there, like everything's upside down in Jacob's life. And the story gives us the impression that he is walking and all of a sudden the sun starts going down and he doesn't even know where he's at, right? He doesn't know the significance of the place that he's in. And as the sun goes down, um, he's got to, he's just got to lay down somewhere and, and rest for the night. And he's in open country and he's vulnerable and he's exposed and everything is uncertain right now, right? He doesn't know what's going to happen next. He has unknowingly though arrived at no ordinary place. Um, the place that he ends up stopping for the night has significance. Um, and the passage, like, again, I think that's part of the reason why it keeps on drawing attention, saying, and he, he came to a certain place, and then he took a rock of that place, and he laid down in that place, because that place is somewhere special. He actually ends up in a place called Bethel, or Bethel was probably closer to the way they would have said it in Hebrew, which means the house of God. That's where he ends up. Um, and it was a significant place already in his family's history, and it would be an even more significant place in the people of Israel's history throughout the years. Abraham, when he had first come into the land, came to Bethel and set up an altar there to God and worshipped God there. And he did that just before he went into exile, you could say, in the land of Egypt, and went down to Egypt and had various things that happened there. Then he comes back again out of Egypt, and guess where he goes? He goes to Bethel again. And he builds an altar there to God again and worships God again as he comes out of Egypt, okay? And so what we notice is this. Bethel is a place of disembarking and returning. It's a site where the people has significance in the people of God, right? People leave to go sort of into exile from that place, and then they come back to that place again, to the house of God. They walk away from the house of God. And then they return back to the house of God. Guess what? The same thing is going to be true of Jacob. Jacob is going to set out on this journey basically from Bethel. This is the beginning of his journey. And many chapters from now, when he comes home, he's going to come back to Bethel and worship God again. And guess what happens at Bethel? Bethel is where God changes his name and makes says, you are no longer Jacob, the heel grabber. You are now Israel the wrestler with God, okay? And so this is a, it's, it's a place of special significance, and something special happens there. Verse 12, he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder or a stairway set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to the heavens. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it, and behold, the Lord stood above it. Okay, so Jacob has this vision, this dream in the night, and he sees this ladder, or in some translations it says stairway. The word is probably actually connected to the concept of, you know what a ziggurat is? Like it's these uh, Mesopotamian pyramids that are like, instead of being like an Egyptian pyramid that's very, you know, even, like it's like these sort of layered um, pyramids. Well, those typically have a stairway up the middle 
Instead of these big layers, there's a stairway up the middle that goes all the way to the top. And the words are the same. They're connected linguistically or whatever. So imagine that all of a sudden, Jacob has this vision. He sees this giant staircase going up to heaven. And as he looks, he notices that angels are ascending to heaven and descending to earth and uh, presumably going about their work in the world, right? And this is a, a picture of something that's going to be important is that God is working out there all the time in ways that we cannot see and do not understand. Right. God's agents, the, the God's angels are out there working in the world. They are coming down to earth and doing things and working and protecting and 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 causing God's plans to come to fruition. And then they're returning back to God. And so he sees this picture. But that's not the most important thing. Right. The most spectacular thing about this is that when he looks at this stairway to heaven, he sees God sitting at the top. That God from heaven is looking down from the top of the staircase. And so this place, Bethel, the house of God, is literally the place where heaven and earth are joined, essentially. It is a picture of the idea that in this place, the heavenly world and the earthly world have a point of connection. And and Jacob has just stumbled upon this place, except obviously he hasn't stumbled upon it. This is part of God's plan for him to be here and to see these things. And so in that moment, in that moment of kind of fear and uncertainty and awe and terror that probably would happen if you had a vision of the heavens opened and um, seeing the presence of God and and these angels coming up and down, all of a sudden, what does he do? Uh, The Lord begins to speak and the Lord says something to him. So look at verse 13. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Right? So that is basically a restatement of the promise that we've already seen him give to Abraham. He has reconfirmed that blessing to Isaac. And so now Jacob hears the same promise to him. And what does that mean? Why is that significant? Well, because Jacob's sin has not forfeited the promises, right? Because the promises were never based on Jacob's performance. They were never based on how good Jacob was. God's promises were based on his own character and his own sovereign will. Okay, Notice something about that passage again, verses 13 and 14. Notice the unilateral language of everything that was said. Notice the unconditional language of the promises that God makes. He doesn't give any conditions. He doesn't give any expectations. He says, this is what I'm going to do. Because I have sovereignly chosen to see these things come to fruition. Okay, God's faithfulness seems like to be a theme that we talk about just about every week. I swear, I think we've talked about it every single sermon in this series. Okay, That's not a bad thing. Um, it might seem like you go, oh, man, we just we keep on talking about God's faithfulness. When are we going to talk about something other than God's faithfulness? I hope we talk about God's faithfulness forever, right? Because that's why we're here is God's faithfulness. And it's, and it's awesome that in every single one of these stories, we are reminded of the fact that God doesn't stick with these people because they're awesome. God sticks with these people because he has made promises to them and he intends to keep those promises. 
And so can you imagine the comfort that that must have brought Jacob right then? That God is reiterating the promises that, sure, he has a swindled birthright and he has a swindled blessing that he's gotten from his father. And he's hoping those things stick. But then to have the God of the universe speak to you from heaven and say, I confirm these things. You are the bearer of the promise and you will have these things um, that have been promised to you. The comfort that must come from that, knowing that you haven't thrown it all away, that you haven't messed it up to the point where it's gone, that God is faithful even if you have not been. I hope you know that feeling already because the truth is that's the feeling that we should have in Jesus Christ, right? We should experience that kind of, of, of encouragement and hope all the time because we recognize that we have Jesus Christ. We have been saved by him. He is working through us, and that has nothing to do with our worthiness. It has nothing to do with how good we are but how good Jesus is. So Jacob hasn't forfeited the promises. He hasn't forfeited the blessing. He hasn't forfeited the birthright. But it does look like he's going to have to take the long way around. Okay? Because, again, he's not going towards the promises right now. He's headed away from the promises. And so we still get this picture of God saying, I'm faithful and I promise these things. But you're in a situation now where it's going to, it's going to take a while to get this thing back around. Okay, And that's the reality of the situation we find ourselves in in life sometimes. Sometimes because of, again, things that we have done. Sometimes because of decisions that other people have made and we have suffered the repercussions of them. And so God promises that he reiterates that same covenant. But look what in verse 15. He adds on to it. This is not something that he has said to Abraham or Isaac. He's adding to the promise now. He's giving Jacob a a little bit more. And he says, behold, I am with you. And will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. Man, isn't that a great line? Like that should be something that we stitch on pillows and put in our living rooms, okay? Um, If you want a life verse to tattoo on your arm, don't. But you should get it on a piece of paper and hang it up in your house or whatever, right? Um, Now you can get a tattoo if you want. I don't care. Um, Man, that's a great verse, right? And again, the same thing is true. We have that same kind of promise in Jesus Christ, that I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go. Isn't that what Jesus says at the Great, uh, at the great Commission, right? Uh, I will be with you always until the end of the world. I will bring you back to this land, and for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Again, I know, because I know most of y'all pretty well, I know that you have taken detours in your faith at some point, right? Um, And again, whether that was because of your own rebellion or because of the result of, of violence or cruelty that was done to you, I know, um, that we have walked away before that we have walked away from the house of God. Um, and we sojourned out there for a while before we returned to the house of God. Um, I've been there. You've been there. But the truth is, and the thing that we have to realize is, God didn't walk away from us, right? We might have walked away from Bethel. We might have walked away from the house of God. But God didn't walk away from us in that time. He was there. He is there. He will continue to be there. And he didn't abandon us. Because he is faithful. 
And so again, he stands waiting to receive us again. And again, we get all these great pictures of the prodigal son and different things like that. Even when we were rebellious, even when we were stupid and walked away, even as we ran from his promises, those promises remained and chased us. Right? That protection that God has promised remains. And so then it says in verse 16, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Right? Um, I just laid down in this place, and it turns out that this is the place where heaven and earth meet. And he was afraid, right? And said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. And so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. All right. And so that city was named Luz is probably referencing the fact that at some point in the history of Israel, um, there was this city there that people knew as, as Luz, but that's not the place that he's talking about. He's talking about this place that, that, that Jacob has, has named Bethel. And so Jacob's in awe, right? Rightfully so. If the heavens opened up behind me and you saw God up there, I would hope you would be freaked out by it, okay? That you would be um, n- not only in awe, but there would be certain kind of reverent fear that would come over us to be in God's presence like that. And that's exactly what happens. And when he sees that, he begins to worship, okay? That's what that whole process is where he says, I'm going to set up this altar. And, um, and then he makes some promises to God. He begins to worship, and that's exactly what should happen. When we see God's unrelenting grace to us and we see God's glory displayed, it should draw us into worship. Honestly, that's what we're trying to do every week, right? Every week, if you look in our bulletin, the first thing that it says there in that little, those little weird headings off to the side, it says, look at it real quick. So there on page one, it says, and I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, right? The idea is that as we sing these songs and we begin to um, remember and recollect and dwell on the things that God has done to, for us and through us and, and to us, then all of a sudden that draws us into going, how awesome is God? And these things pull us into true worship, right? They're not just words we're singing anymore. We are actually drawn into worship because we see the glory of God. That's what happens to Jacob. He sees God's glory, he sees his grace, and he, and, he, and he sets up this place of worship. And so verse 20, it says, Jacob made a vow. And saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, I will give uh, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Okay. So Jacob makes promises in his worship. He sets up an offering to God in worship of God. And now here's one thing that I notice about this passage, okay? Most commentators will tell you that this passage is the language of it is completely normal. That it, that it is, uh, it has to do with the way covenants were made in sort of this Middle Eastern culture and that there's nothing odd or out of place in the language of it, okay? But I can't help but notice something when I read it. Uh, when God made promises to Jacob, the promises were unilateral, right? God, he says to Jacob, hey, I'm going to do these things, period. 
And yet when Jacob turns and speaks back to God, you notice a difference. Jacob says things like, all right, God, if you keep up your end of the bargain, then I'll do these things. If you'll give me food and clothing, then I'll worship you. If you'll get me back home safe, then you'll be my God. Right? If you'll see me again to my father's house, then I'll give you a tenth of everything I have. Again, most commentators say that's just normal language for a covenant contract kind of thing. But man, I just feel like there's a, there's a juxtaposition between those two things. That God is unconditionally pouring out his grace on Jacob. And Jacob, he's not there yet. Okay? He's still bargaining. Right? He's still saying, you know what, God? I'll follow you as long as everything works out well in the end, okay? And again, we probably shouldn't look too, um, look down on Jacob too far because, too much because that's exactly what we do sometimes, right? We say those same kind of things. You know what, God, if you'll show up, then I'll be the kind of person you've called me to be. If you'll keep on doing what I want you to do, then I'll keep on being faithful and worshiping you. And the truth is, that's not the way it should be, right? We should have unfeigned loyalty, um, to God and unfeigned obedience and worship to the extent that what Job says this, even if you slay me, I will worship you still. Right. Even if you kill me, I will continue to worship you because what else am I going to do? There's no other there's no other way for me to rightly be engaged with you. Our relationship with God, though, and we see this in Jacob, is is a process a lot of times, right? We don't just, it's not like the Matrix, you know, where Neo plugs the thing into his head and all of a sudden he knows Kung Fu instantly, right? We don't get saved and then all of a sudden um, upload perfect um, righteousness and, and worship and attitude towards God. I'll be honest with you, I don't even think he's saved yet. I don't think... Jacob is a follower of God, right? He's a kind of worshiper of God right here, but he's not actually one of God's people yet. I think we get a clue to that. Did you notice when God talked to him and he said, I'm the God of Abraham, your father, and Isaac, your father. And you go, seems like everywhere else in the Bible it says that God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? But he just leaves Jacob's name off, even though he's talking to him. He's like, I'm not really your God yet. I mean, I am on my end, but you don't get it yet. You have not taken a step into that relationship yet. And so I think that's what is going to happen, and we're going to see it before we get to the end of the story. We're going to see what I think is, is something akin to Jacob's conversion. So um, can I encourage you real quick with what encourages me? Um, and I, uh, again, I've known um, many of you, and when you were on detours, um, and I'd say this, when you have friends who are doing that, when you're in a situation where you have a friend or a family member who is, is in that kind of rebellion, that fugitive, that walking away from God or running away from God even, this is what I would encourage you to say. I would say, number one, you can't make people come home, right? You can't make anybody do anything. But you can be a certain kind of person in that person's life in the meantime, and it's cool because you see this so often in the scriptures. You see so many stories of so many characters who take the long way around, right? That should give us hope. You shouldn't look at somebody's life that's uh, gone off the grid or something and say, man, they're a lost cause. I've given up on that person. You, you don't see that in the Bible, right? You see lots of people who for a long time 
are figuring it out, okay? And so this is what I would encourage you. The best way to serve those people um, who are walking away from the Lord is, is three things. Be honest to them, okay? Don't sugarcoat it. Um, say, look, this is what needs to happen, right? You need to turn from your sin and you need to return to the Lord. That's what needs to happen. So be honest with them, but be gracious, Knowing that, A, you're probably just like them. You're just a little further down the track, maybe. Or you haven't had the same situations arise in your life that have derailed you or whatever. So be gracious to those people. And then third, be patient. Okay? Trusting that the Lord is going to work. And the Lord is going to keep his promises and bring people back around in his own time. So it's okay to be on a journey, right? That journey can never be an excuse for our sin, um, but it does give you permission to be in process, right? To still be figuring things out and not to use that as an excuse, but to say, this is the way humanity works, right? This is the way we live out our lives. And so Bethel marks this beginning for, for Jacob in that way. Um, it is the beginning of his journey with God, you could say. And I love how one commentator describes the whole story. He said, it's a story about a place becoming a shrine, a stone becoming an altar, and a fugitive becoming a pilgrim, right? And that's a great, that's a great little way of describing this passage. Um, Here's the cool thing, though, the bigger picture, because we've talked about how all of these stories, they're not just morality tales, right? They're not just supposed to read this and go, oh, cool. Um, I learned something about humanity and morality in this thing. All of the Bible is pointing to Jesus in some way. And this passage in particular is pointing to him in a very unique way. So real quick, I know this is like a total shift of gear and we're like starting another sermon. But real quick, John chapter one, turn to John chapter one real quick. Because these passages, again, they don't stand alone. They're part of God's greater story of redemption in the scriptures. Jacob's life is setting up the story of Jesus, you could say. And so in John chapter 1, Jesus begins to call disciples to himself after he's taken on this, this, uh, his public ministry. And there's a somewhat strange encounter that happens with the disciple Nathaniel. And it's down in verse 43. It says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, come and see. So Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Okay, so what has happened is, is Jesus had a... I mean, Jesus, even though he was far away in a different place, Jesus saw him because Jesus knows everything, right? And Jesus saw um, Nathaniel sitting there. He heard Nathaniel make that snide little comment about, can anything good come out of, of Nazareth? That's such like a podunk place. Certainly the Messiah didn't come from Nazareth. And so then Jesus says something that, man, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but I can't help but think it's just got a little sarcasm in it, right? Where he's like, oh, well, look, 
Here is this Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Okay? Notice those two words that pop up. Israelite, one, sure he's an Israelite, but that's Jacob. Jacob's name is Israel, right? And then who is the, who is the better picture of a deceiver? It's Jacob. Okay? And so I, I feel like Jesus is just sort of like hinting at something there. He's going like, man, there's never been anybody who is more like your namesake than you, Nathaniel, right? And Nathaniel's like, well, how do you know me, buddy? I don't, I don't know who, what you're, how, what you're getting at there. So then he says, I saw you when you were under that tree, verse 49. And when he says that, he says, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel, which seems like a pretty small thing for him to make such a bold claim. Verse 50, Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And then the key is verse 51. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Okay? The angels are ascending and descending, but there's something missing from the picture. What's missing? The ladder's missing. The stairway's missing, right? The angels are ascending and descending, but where are they ascending and descending? They're ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What's that telling us? It's telling us Jesus is the ladder, right? Jesus is the point of connection between heaven and earth. Jesus is the center. Jesus is the house of God, right? Jesus is the place where God dwells most fully because he is God, right? Um, Jesus is the place that we often walk away from, and Jesus is the necessary place that we will have to walk back to if we are ever um, to be right with God. And so Jesus is Bethel, right? Jesus is that place. Um, he is the house of God. And that's what that whole picture is, is turning to, um, pointing towards. And I, and I want to close with this. Man, it's, it's easy in these stories um, and, and to, to sometimes miss Jesus, right? Um, but remember that everything we do is about Jesus. All of the scriptures are about Jesus. Your entire life is about Jesus. Um, if, if, if you walk away from any service that we have and you think, oh, I, I can just go about my life and do things in a generic religious or godly way or something like that, and you have missed the centrality of Jesus, then you've missed what was going on. Or maybe it's our fault um, for not presenting it clearer, but we're always pointing towards Jesus. The scriptures are always pointing towards Jesus. He is the center. And, and your whole life is going to be about whether or not you have come to Jesus, the house of God, Bethel. All right? So let's go to the Lord in prayer. I'm, I'm not even sure where to go exactly in prayer, right? I know for one thing we can thank God that he has seen us home again. Um, for some of us, we might not be home yet. And we're still on that journey just like Jacob is. If that's the case, then we continue to thank God and say, thank you, God, that you are still working, still watching, still protecting, and still bringing me along, and that you're faithful and that you will see me back to my home in Jesus Christ. Amen? Okay, well, let's just go to the Lord in prayer.
Father God, thank you for saving us. God, thank you for working in our lives. God, I know um, you know um, my story. Um, You were there in the time um, that I walked away. Um, You were there in the time that I decided that I could do things on my own and and be out in the world uh, in a way that was disconnected from you uh, and your son and your church. Um, God, and it was even in the midst of that time that you called me back, that that um, you spoke to me in my head and in my heart and said, this is not who you are and this is not who you were called to be. And you drew me back to yourself. God, I know that's the story of so many people here. Um, God, thank you for your unconditional grace. Um, Thank you that you are always ready, always welcoming, always inviting, always wooing, always drawing us back to yourself. And that if we will simply turn away from sin and self and towards Jesus, God, that you will continue to draw us in close and to um, comfort us and to secure us and to make us more like your son. Um, God, help us to do that. Um, Help us to... um, Seek out um, opportunities to um, to follow you, to 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 put ourselves in positions where um, we are seeking after you, and have others around us who can help us in those endeavors as well. Um, we love you, we praise you, we thank you for your mercy, we thank you for your Son Jesus, and it's in His name we pray. Amen.